But good morning to you. Hope you are doing well today. Let me go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 6. Um, as everybody's kind of getting ready. and uh, Isaiah 6. Um, as uh, Jeff just shared, uh, as of yesterday about this time, Joey was still going to be preaching and um, uh, both him and his wife are sick and uh, throughout the day he got sicker and sicker to the point he didn't feel like texting and if you don't feel like texting man that's a pretty sick situation so I want to ask you f- to pray for two things this morning pray for Joey and Jamie as they both are dealing with illness and say well, just pray for me pray for this moment um, I tried to do my due diligence at eight o'clock last night and spend a few hours getting prepared I don't want to ask for sympathy I'm simply asking for your patience and grace um, as we open up God's word together um, in Isaiah 6, I actually read this last week, leading worship. Um, it's just one of my favorite passages, and this is something that I shared a few months uh, a few months ago at Rescue Mission. I just want to elaborate a little bit more on these truths. Um, but if you're there in Isaiah 6, let me go ahead and open the, uh, invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 6. Starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Can we pray? Father, uh, even at this moment, I honestly stand here perplexed that um, you would have me standing here at this moment, at this time, in the midst of renovations tomorrow, in the midst of everything going on around us, um, to preach this text. Where somebody in this place needs to see you. As Jeff's already prayed, as Logan prayed earlier over me, we want people to see you, not see me. We want people to hear from you, not from me. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to lead every aspect of this time. May people encounter your power. Move in this place. May the gospel be heard. Thank you for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. So uh, in the past when I've preached, I've shared multiple things that I'm, I love and I'm excited about and I'm interested about. But one thing I've never shared to you is that I love roller coasters. 
I'm that geek on YouTube who watches about every day to keep up with all the newest trends and amusement park world and new roller coaster rumors. I love that stuff. I fell in love with roller coasters when I was 11, and uh, I got addicted to it. It's a weird addiction, I know. It's a weird hobby to watch, I know, but I fully enjoy watching vlogs to all the new amusement park giggles. And so I just want to share that by saying the story really quick. So... In my opinion, the greatest theme park in the world is Cedar Point. Now, if you don't know what Cedar Point is, Cedar Point is who owns Carowinds. Uh, when Paramount was sold, uh, Cedar Fair, which is the, basically who owns Cedar Point, bought out all, I believe it was 13 parks at the time. So if you buy the Platinum Pass at Carowinds, you can go to all these different parks in the Cedar Fair chain, right? So long before that happened, in 2006, I had just fell in love with roller coasters and I was about 15, 16 years old at the time. I started seeing commercials about this place called Cedar Point. I never heard about it at that time. And, and all I seen was all these incredible rides, right? I said, oh, they had to start having uh, specials about it on CNN. I remember that. I was in the hospital visiting somebody, and I saw it, and I just was transfixed on this video, on this coverage about this place. I just fell in love with it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it would be incredible to go to this place one day. Well, a few months later, uh, my aunt was just super gracious, and she bought tickets for me and my dad, and even the plane ride tickets, to go up to Sandusky, Ohio, where Cedar Point is, right off Lake Erie. It's right beside it. And we got to go and, and actually experience Cedar Point. Now, now, before I talk about that experience, which was incredible, I'd already begin, begin doing research I knew every ride in the park. I knew all the history of the park. In 1989, the Maxim XL roller coaster, which is the first hyper coaster, which is above 200 feet tall, was built, and it broke all records of that time. 2000, a ride called Millennium Force was built. It was the first giga coaster, which was over 300 feet tall, and it went over 90 miles per hour over a big, huge drop hill, which dropped 305 feet. It was crazy. 2003, a roller coaster called Thrill Top Dragster, which was the first Stratocoaster, which is over 400 feet tall, was built. It goes 120 miles per hour in less than three seconds. It goes up 420 feet in the air, and it drops in a 17-second ride, which broke all records of that time. A new other rise, rise called uh, Steel Vengeance, which is later on. A new ride called Maverick. I know all this stuff, right? And so I, I, I was excited. I thought I knew all about Cedar Point even before I got there. So when we got to Sandusky, we flew, and we, Cedar Point's out there on an island. So you got to drive on this really long little road, and it takes you out to the park. It's on this, uh, like, peninsula-type thing, and the, the lake's all around it. So when you pull up, the roller coasters are so tall that you can see them for miles ahead. And I remember just the anticipation as we're driving up to Cedar Point. And I remember the first moment when we stepped into the gate of Cedar Point, And I was like, I have arrived. <laughs> I cannot believe it. I, I looked up and I saw all these incredible colors, all these incredible rides, right? But here's what I'm trying to get to. You see, I knew a lot of information about these roller coasters. I knew a lot of information. I knew the history of Cedar Point. I knew everything that they did from their inception, which is in the, night, in the 1800s. But until I actually stood right in front 
I thrilled top dragster and saw 420 feet tall and what that looked like until I got on the roller coaster, Millennium Force, and I went up the chain hill at 305 feet and dropped 90 miles per hour going down that hill. I really never actually knew what Cedar Point was. I never actually experienced it. You see, knowing information about something is much different than actually experiencing it and seeing it for yourself. But here's the thing about experiencing, something about seeing something. Once you see it, once you experience it, you're never the same again. Today, I'm asking you this question. Have you ever seen the Lord? Have you seen him? Now, with this question, I think it's important to clarify what I'm not asking. I'm not asking if you ever heard about God. I'm not asking if you ever read the Bible. I'm not asking if you know a lot of facts about Jesus and could win the Battleground Community Church Bible Fact Pop Quiz, which sounds pretty awesome, by the way. Talk to me later. We might figure that out. (laughs) And I'm not asking if your parents, your siblings, your family members, friends, or someone else that you might know has a relationship with Jesus. No, what I'm asking is if you have ever personally seen Jesus. Do you know him today? Have you ever encountered the sovereign and holy God for yourself? Here in Isaiah 6, Isaiah the prophet recounts the exact moment when he saw the God of heaven. In fact, I believe that this is an important point to make. Isaiah knew exactly where he was and when he saw the Lord. He remembers the details. Back in verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah remembers who he was, where he was, what he saw, what he heard, what he felt, and in in, in what he experienced. This was a moment in Isaiah's life that he would never forget. You could say in a much grander way, Isaiah had his own Cedar Point moment. And what Isaiah does here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is he gives us, to the best of his ability, in his own words, a snapshot of what God in his throne actually looks like and ultimately what it looks like to see the God of heaven. So that's what I want to do for the next few minutes is simply point out four things Isaiah sees when he sees the God of heaven. So the first thing Isaiah sees is the glory of in holiness of God. Go back to verse 1 with me. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each has six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one another called and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at his voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So as Isaiah begins to share this incredible throne room scene, he immediately points out the first thing that he realizes is that God is both glorious and holy. First, God is glorious. Again, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. 
God is seen here as the sovereign king of the universe, full of majesty, full of dominion, and he is lifted up higher than anything else. First Chronicles 29, 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Brothers and sisters, this is what we must see first. We must see God for who he truly is, what he truly deserves. Listen, if we look at ourselves before we look at God, our vision gets blurry. Our worship becomes tainted. Our praise becomes wrongly distributed. We will begin lifting up other things in our lives in this world that have no right being in the place where God alone deserves to be, which is complete exaltation above everything else. In our current Roman series, we're looking at man's depravity and God's wrath. Last week and in the coming weeks, we're going to see what it looks like when people refuse to honor the Lord above anything else. Notice, if you go with me to Romans chapter 1 really quick, drop down to verse 21. Notice what Paul says. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 28, a few verses down. And since they did not see to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not, ought not to be done. Do you see the danger that we're facing? When we don't rightly see God above everything else, when we refuse to honor him above everything, our minds and our hearts can become darkened to the point that we can't even see him any longer. Me and John, as I mentioned last time I preached, have a podcast, we're going through the study of Mark and the unpardonable sin, right, is the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. At the heart of that is that these people are so blind, they're so hardened to Jesus that they literally cannot repent of their sins any longer. That's the threat. Your eyes can be so darkened that you can't even see light any longer. Not only this, notice the text, if you refuse to honor God, to rightly lift him up, you very well could get exactly what you want in this life. God might literally abandon you to the life that you are so desperately wanting to live. And if you just read Romans 1, notice what that leads to. Listen, God alone is the one who is high and lifted up. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of this universe who's perfect and righteous and altogether awesome. God is and must be elevated above every other kingdom or authority in existence. Psalm 57, 11 says, Be exalted, all God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. God's glory is above all things. And notice down in Isaiah 6, verse 3, that God's glory fills up 
the earth. He says, And one another called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice what he's saying. God's glory is evident in his creation. It can be seen on this earth. In fact, Psalm 19 tells us that no one has an excuse for not knowing that there is a God because God has given us literal clues and evidence all around us throughout creation as proof of his existence. In Isaiah 19, or Isaiah, Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So go out in this nice gloomy day and look up to the sky. Look at a beautiful mountain range. Look at our brother Daryl Crawford's older pictures of Moss Lake and the beautiful sunsets over that lake. And I promise you, you will see the glory of God. He's given us clear evidence that he exists, that he's glorious and ever worthy of all our worship. God is glorious, amen? Amen. Secondly, we see how God is holy. Go with me to verse two. Above him stood the seraphim. Each has six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Here in this passage, Isaiah sees the absolute holiness of God. Notice how holy he is. Angels dare not look at him, but continually declare his holiness. The word holy means to be separate, apart, or so sacred. God is seen here as highly exalted on his heavenly throne and completely separate from everything else. 1 Samuel 2 verse 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. You could say it this way. God is seen here as completely otherworldly. He's set apart. He's so perfect. He's so awesome that there is literally nothing else compared to him. He's totally and completely set apart. He's on his own level. God alone is totally perfect. God alone is totally and perfectly righteous. Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 48 says, And therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God himself is the standard of perfection and righteousness. What Isaiah here tells us is that Right now, as God is seated on his throne, there are literal angels in his presence who dare not look at him, but do nothing except declare his holiness. John Piper said once that the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. Meaning that you be, when you behold God's glory in creation or in his son, what you're really seeing is the holiness of God on display. You're seeing his perfection on display. You're seeing his transcendence. 
his other worldliness, if you will, his set-apartness. You're seeing his beauty, his power, his righteousness. You're seeing every single thing that he is and everything that you are not. God's holiness is awesome, it's terrifying, and listening, it's convicting. This leads us to the second thing Isaiah sees, which is that compared to God's holiness and glory, Isaiah sees his own sinfulness. Verse 5. And I said, let's listen to the text, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So at this moment, as Isaiah is looking at this awesome and incredible vision of God Almighty on his throne, he quickly realizes that he doesn't deserve to stand in front of this God. This again must be reiterated. If we start without or with looking at ourselves rather than God, we will not see our own sinfulness. We won't see our own unworthiness. I was reading a commentary from Mark and or it might have been a worship team of read too many books. And the guy was really feeling bad about himself and and he went to another pastor and he said, Listen, I'm just down in the dumps and he said, I just don't know what to do and, and the pastor said, well, the fact that you're telling me that you don't, you're not feeling right is telling me that you don't really understand how desperate you are as a person. You are utterly helpless without Jesus. <laughs> we don't see that, right? We start with ourselves. Can I just make this point? Do you want to know where all these crazy ideologies and worldviews how they're springing up right now in this world. It's because they start with this. It's Romans 1, right? They refuse to accept God. They refuse to worship Him. Therefore, they're abandoned to do anything they want to do. They worship creation rather than the Creator. Listen, they really worship themselves above the Creator. They place themselves on the throne of heaven, and they believe everything that is good comes within themselves. Brothers and sisters, how scary is that way of thinking? This way of life. In reality, what these people are saying is that they are holy, holy, holy. And the God of this Bible doesn't deserve to be in their presence. Yes, we must be careful to start by looking at the God of heaven. And when we do, listen, we will see Isaiah Saul. We're going to see how he saw himself in ourselves. Isaiah saw God's holiness, and he immediately saw his unworthiness, his unrighteousness. Isaiah saw his own sin and shame. As I mentioned a few weeks back, Psalm 24, we're told that only those who have clean hands and a pure heart can climb up God's hill to stand before him. And the bad news for all of us is that in and of ourselves, none of us have clean hands and a pure heart. None of us have the capability and the right to climb up this hill of God. Isaiah here realizes that compared to God's holiness and perfection, that he himself was a sinner. To sin means to miss the mark. But what we've been learning through the three circles evangelism method is that missing the mark is deliberate. It's intentional. 
we willfully miss God's mark of righteousness and holiness. Yes, we're prone to wander, but what we see is that we willfully decide to start wandering in the wrong direction in the first place. Isaiah, as he rightly sees God as glorious and holy, he realizes that he has missed the mark of God's perfection and holiness because of his filthy lips. And because he has missed the mark of God's holiness, Isaiah realizes that he is deserving of death. Notice with me again, verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Isaiah is saying. It's over. I'm doomed. How could I stand before this holy God and live? Isaiah's sin deserved death. And listen, this morning, our sin before this holy God deserves death as well. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah realizes that as he stands in his sin before God Almighty, that he doesn't stand a chance. He's guilty and deserving of death. But praise be to God, this isn't the last thing that he sees. Because number three, Isaiah sees the salvation of the Lord. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. How beautiful is that? So as Isaiah is standing there, fully aware of God's glory, fully aware of his unworthiness, understanding that he deserves the punishment of death, Notice the text. The angels fly over to him with the burning coal. Notice where the coal is coming from. And the angel touched Isaiah's sinful lips. And God removes both Isaiah's guilt and his sin. God atoned for Isaiah's sin. He covers it. He removes it. He paid the ransom to save Isaiah's life. What Isaiah could not do on his own, God did it for him. He provided the very means by which Isaiah could be forgiving. Think about that. How amazing is that reality? God at this moment does not have to forgive Isaiah. He'll be right to punish him. But in his perfection and holiness, by his grace, God provides a means from his own altar to redeem Isaiah and forgive him. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, or would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him 
from the wrath of God. The Bible tells us that just the right time, when this entire world was chained up in the slavery of sin, I'm a Christmas fan, I love that imagery that we were in darkness. There wasn't no flashlight, if you will. Light had to come, and it did. God, by his grace, from his own throne, sent his one and only son, Jesus, born of a virgin, born with flesh and blood, just like ours. And Jesus, the son of God, lived a perfect and sinless life. He went to a cross that we fully deserved in our place. He died a death we deserved. He paid the price we can never pay. He satisfied God's holy wrath for us. And he did all of this, listen, to forgive us of our sin. Jesus then rises from the grave three days later, declaring that he is exactly who he said he is and declaring that death is defeated and that there is new life that can be found in him. And this is what's amazing. Because Jesus died a once for all sin atoning sacrifice on the cross for all sin, and because Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus, the Son of God, by his own grace, now offers his own blood that he sacrificed for us at the cross as a means by which you and I can now be forgiven of our sin, just like Isaiah, and be redeemed and adopted as God's precious sons and daughters. Old him, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So Isaiah sees first the glory and holiness of God. He second sees his own sinfulness. Third, he sees the salvation of the Lord. And finally, Isaiah saw the mission of God. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So as Isaiah here tastes the salvation of the Lord, his heart immediately responds with both willingness and excitement to go and tell others about what God has done for him. Verse 7, he is told that his sins atone for it. Notice in verse 8, it's like he can't raise his hand fast enough to say, yeah, I'm in. You know, after I visited this Cedar Point when I was 16, you know what I did? I couldn't quit talking about it. I was so impacted by what I experienced that I wanted to share it with others, right? That's what Isaiah's doing. His willingness to go and be God's messenger is an overflow of a heart that has been redeemed by the grace of God. Listen, when we've been redeemed, the haziness that once covered our eyes has been removed, and we now see the true purpose and mission God has given us to accomplish in our lives. Jesus, in John chapter 4, right after he speaks with the woman of the well, she's back and sharing her testimony and and the disciples are worried about feeding him. And I love what he says. Verse 34, John chapter 4. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and comes a harvest? Listen to what he says. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white. 
for harvest. Church, the true purpose of your salvation, this impacted me greatly in seminary. The true purpose of your salvation is not simply so that you can go out to hell, get out of hell. It's for the glory of God. You've been saved for his glory. It's for the sake of billions around the world who are still unreached with the gospel. You've been purchased with a high price. Listen, you're now God's temple. You're now his ambassador, and he is now working through you to reconcile others to himself. That's your purpose. That's the mission. He's given us new hearts, new affections. He's given us a new song to sing. He's given us a new purpose. Therefore, go and live and declare for him. You know, it's true that we talk about what we love. Here in this text, God has won Isaiah's heart and affections. Therefore, Isaiah wanted to tell others about what he loved. This leads to a simple question and encouragement as we kind of begin wrapping this up. First, what do you love? What do you love? And secondly, if the answer to this question is Jesus... Well, then, go and tell others about what you love. So what? It's got two questions to consider. As I close, I just want to simply lead us back to where we started. First question is this, have you ever seen Jesus? Have you actually ever seen Jesus? Have you seen him in all of his glory? Have you seen him in all of his holiness? Have you seen that compared to him, you are completely unworthy, completely sinful? Have you seen him hanging on the cross where he shed his blood to forgive you of your sin? Have you seen him resurrected, seated on his throne with his nailed, scarred hands open saying, come, find rest, find life, find true purpose in me, follow me. Have you seen him? I'm going to ask this a different way. Have you actually started and have a relationship with Jesus? Have you put your faith and life in Jesus? If not, oh, I implore you, don't wait another second. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The Bible says that to be saved, we must Repent and believe. Repent literally means to turn, turn from sin, but repenting isn't just this negative connotation. Yes, you are turning from sin, which leads to death and destruction, but you're turning to joy and everlasting life, which is found in the only one who can save you. Romans 10 says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. As I close, my second question really carries over from this first question, which is, if you have ever seen Jesus, how are you responding to him? How are you responding to Jesus? 
In our passage, Isaiah is redeeming, redeemed and forgiven by God, and he responds with an overflow of gratefulness and readiness to go and do whatever the Lord calls him to go or do. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, Isaiah has been captivated by God, and he gladly responds to God's question with humble submission to his king. Church, how about you? How are you responding to God's mission in your own life? Are you hearing and seeing what God has called you to do? And are you gladly going for your king? I think we could really ask this question, has Jesus captivated your heart? Do you love him more than anything else? Because if you do, listen, you will talk about whatever you love. Maybe you're in a similar season that I found myself in over the past few months where, honestly, we kind of find myself quietly wandering away, not consistently in the presence of God, always having good and bad excuses for not being in his word, not spending time with him. Maybe you're just feeling like your love for the Lord has been distant and cold, that you aren't enjoying Jesus as much as you have in the past. Can I just encourage you with something that the Lord has just recently reminded me of and led me to? Can I just encourage you to go back to your first love? Hear his tender voice this morning that's calling you back into his presence. This is a beautiful promise in the Gospels. If you want more of your Savior, the Bible says he's gracious to give us more of himself. He's gracious and merciful to draw us into himself and leads our hearts to love him more deeply, which is ultimately the greatest commitment in the first place. Church, as we see the Lord in all of his glory, as we love him more and more, may we joyfully respond to the mission he's calling us to with glad and willing hearts. Every day as I drive to the office I, I normally that's my time of prayer it's the most quiet time if you've got kids you understand <laughs> at the end of almost every single prayer I always pray um, Father as Isaiah says so long ago here I am send me I'm just willing Lord whatever you want me to do today it's my prayer for you as we leave this place my prayer is that just as Isaiah's declaration, which came so long ago for the sake of God's mission, that this would be the declaration of every single one of our hearts every single day. That we are both willing and ready to go where, whatever and wherever Jesus calls us to go and do whatever he calls us to do. That as we see Jesus receive his salvation, continue to grow in our love for him each day that we would stand in boldness, ready to share that which we love and declare resolutely, here I am, Lord, send me. Can we pray? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. In a lot of ways, I feel like it was almost too simple. <laughs> Lord, but there's not better news in the world that you, the God of heaven, holy and perfect, made a way for us who are sinful and unworthy to be in your presence, 
to have a relationship with you. So Father, I pray for souls in this room who have never put their faith in Jesus, who've never seen Jesus glorious, holy, and raised above everything else, that this morning that you would change their lives from the inside out, draw them to repentance and faith, put their faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. Change their lives just like you changed mine 12 years ago, Lord. And Father, I pray for the church that as we lead this place this morning, that we would grow in a more full and in-depth love for you, that we enjoy you more deeply. And as a response to that, then we would simply be willing vessels to go wherever you would have us to go for your glory. Thank you, Father. Lead our time in singing now. May you be worshiped in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.